we are in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Ten years ago, a lady named Frankie Shaw, who was a member of my previous church, passed away. And I was reminded of Frankie this week when I just sort of stumbled across the notes that I'd made for her funeral. This is literally 10 years ago, September 2013. And one of the things that uh, I wrote down and shared with the people that day, I wanted to share with you, you don't know this lady, You'll get to meet her in heaven someday, but I just thought it was remarkable. She was a very quiet woman. I knew her as very quiet, but when she found out that she wasn't going to get well this side of heaven, that God's way of making her well was going to be to take her into his presence. When she found that out, she immediately started writing letters and she wrote letters and cards to every important person in her life, which she had kids, grandkids, friends, other relatives. So it was a lot. A lot of people got letters and cards from Frankie in those days. And she kept saying the same thing when people would ask her, aren't you tired? Don't you, don't, don't you want to take a break from this? She said, I have to let them know before I'm gone how I feel about them. And you know, that's not a bad attitude for us, even if we don't know that our death is imminent. When's the last time you let someone important in your life know how you felt about them? Uh, but the reason I say that is we're coming to the end of 1 John. By the way, we're going to continue on to 2 John next week. Jeff Russell is going to teach for me because next week's the week when I go out of town and, and uh, plan my all my sermon series for the coming year. Uh, but that's going to be 2 John next week, and then I'll be back the following week with 3 John, and then we'll finish out by looking at the book of Jude. Now, Jude isn't written by John, but it's in that same part of the Bible and it'll, it'll get us through to Christmas time. So that's the rest of this. First John, we're coming to the end of it. Remember, it's a book about uh, being assured of your salvation and, and walking in the light of Christ, knowing that you're walking in that light. But here at the end, there are certain things that John wants to tell us about God. So God through John wants us to know certain things before this letter is over. And I want us to go through those. We're just going to go through them real quickly after I read the passage. Verse 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, and, and if we know that he hears us, in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So several things that John says, that God says to us through John there at the end of the letter. And I want to go through each one of them uh, as quickly as I can. And then there's one that is going to take a little while. So uh, first of all, he, he wants us to know that we have eternal life. That's the first thing. That's the main reason he wrote the book. That's verse 13. 
And I shared with you at the very beginning of the study, that's the theme verse of the book, I believe, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, you may wonder why God would want us to be assured of salvation. After all, wouldn't that tend to diminish our motivation to live a righteous life? I mean, if God wants us to live righteously, shouldn't He threaten us? Shouldn't He say, you better live good because you don't know how it's going to work out. You better, you better do all you can to, to get on my good side before judgment day. But God doesn't say that. He promises us forgiveness, blanket forgiveness from the very beginning. He, he says here, I want you to be assured of your salvation. I want you to know that you have eternal life. And, and, and I've, I've got a good analogy for why. So imagine a man buys a slave and then immediately sets that slave free. That happened in the ancient world and in our own country. Not often, but it happened. If the man's goal is to have a slave, then obviously he's doing the opposite of what he needs to do. But if his goal is to have a friend, he's doing the right thing. What does God want? Does he want slaves or does he want children? Does he want our compelled obedience, our fear, or does he want our love? God tells us this is how you can be saved. This is how you can know that you have eternal life because he doesn't want us to quake whenever we think of him. He wants us to love Him. He wants, he wants us to be His children who can't wait to see Him face to face someday. And if you are a professing Christian, but whenever you think about Judgment Day or whenever you think about seeing God face to face, you're immediately thinking, oh, I don't know. I don't know. That, 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 might, go, that might not go well for me. You need to remember the cross of Jesus Christ. Yeah. That's the whole point. The message of the Bible is not Moses coming down from the Mount Sinai with the law. It's that Jesus fulfilled the law and then died for the sins we couldn't fulfill. So remember that. This is not, this is not like other religions. This is a relationship with a God who loves you and wants you to know that you're saved. So when you struggle with that assurance, don't think about your sin. Don't think of, don't, don't try to do the mental math of have I done enough good deeds or am I in church often enough? That's a losing game. All you need to think about is the cross. All you need to think about is who Jesus is and what he did. All right, the second thing he wants us to know is that God hears our prayers. Verse 14, he, he, he says this. We have this confidence that anything we ask according to his will, he hears us. And when he says he hears us, it doesn't just mean he's aware of what we're saying. He sort of notes it on his heavenly clipboard and says, I'll get to that later. It means he listens. It means he cares about what we're asking. It means that uh, he, will, he will do what we ask if it is according to his will. Now, it's an amazing promise considering there are 8 billion people on the earth right now. At any given moment, how many millions, if not billions, can be praying at the same time in the name of Jesus? We don't know. Somehow God's able to hear all of that, listen to that, and know every single person who is praying and whether that prayer that they're praying is something they should actually have, would actually be good for them. The mind of God is something we can't possibly comprehend. The, the size of it, the scope of it, the weight of it. But, but what about that thing, uh, the prayer according to His will? You might say, well, how do I know what is the will of God? Well, in, in some cases, we don't. This is why Jesus taught us to pray, if it be thy will. But that's not just a magic formula. When you pray, 
and you say, Lord, uh, please heal me if it's your will. Lord, please give me this job if it's your will. Please uh, move my, my, uh, my wife who's angry with me to forgive me or, or my son uh, to uh, make a good decision if it's your will. When we pray that, what we're saying is, I accept whatever you want, Lord, whatever is right. I trust that you know better than I do what's best for my life. But it goes further than that. Okay, praying according to the will of God. I think that's something we can learn how to do well. We can get to the point where we're assured that just about everything we pray is going to happen because we know how to pray according to God's will. I'm not saying I'm there now, but I'm better at it than I used to be. It's sort of like this. When you were a little kid, I mean a little kid, you used to ask your parents for whatever popped into your head. And you started to get frustrated because lots of times they wouldn't give you what you asked for. You couldn't figure out why every night at, at, at about five o'clock and you'd ask your mom for ice cream and she'd say no. Well, then eventually you grow to the point where you realize, well, you know, mom serves dinner at 530. She's not going to give me ice cream at five. So I might as well just stop asking for that. That's, that's not something she's going to give. And it's actually for my good. Because if I had ice cream at five and I didn't eat supper at 5.30, I wouldn't grow up big and strong. You start to learn these things, right? You start to learn how your mom and your dad think and you're like, oh, they're not just giving me things because I ask. They're not just giving me things because I fall down on the ground and throw a wall-eyed fit in Walmart. They've learned that if they give me that toy in Walmart because I threw myself on the ground, guess what I'm going to do the next time I want something? You know, they've learned these things. So you grow to this point where you realize, oh, they're making decisions not based on how, how insistent I am, but based on what they believe that I need. And then you start to go, you know, I've noticed that whenever I ask my parents for information about something or for advice or for help, Dad, I can't, I can't do this. I can't open this jar. Can you open it for me? Mom, I, I don't know how to do this math. Can you sit down and show me how? They always answer those kinds of requests. It's the toys and the candy they don't always give me. And then you start to go, okay, well, I'm just going to stop asking for the stuff that I don't think I actually need. And that's sort of like our relationship with God. We, we, we grow to the point where we start to see the world through his eyes and we start to say, you know, I've learned that you don't really want me to have this stuff over here. I'm going to stop asking for it. I'm going to start asking for the things that I know you do want me to have, like, like wisdom. You've promised to give me that, like, like courage and, and boldness, like uh, you've promised to give me joy. You've promised to give me peace. I'm going to start asking for those things. I'm going to start asking for the growth of your kingdom and for blessing uh, on, on other people and for lost people to hear the gospel. I'm going to start praying for that stuff. And yeah, there will be things that I want, and I'm not sure whether it's your will. Lord, I'm sick. I don't know whether you want to heal me or not. I'm going to go ahead and ask for it. But I've also learned to trust that if you say no, if you don't give me that job that I'm interviewing for next Thursday, uh, I'll just trust that that actually wasn't the right job for me. That's what it means to pray according to the will of God. And, and you gain a, a great deal of peace the more you start to pray that way. Not only do you see more of your prayers answered, but you also have a, great, a much greater sense of peace and less of a sense of, I must have this or I can't possibly be happy. All right, so I've been stalling, but now I get to get to the hard part, all right? So there's a parenthetical note here. Uh, in verses 16 and 17, he mentions a sin leading to death. What on earth is he talking about? And I told 
Hal and Linda over there that I'm pretty sure I'm going to leave you more confused than you came in, but I'm going to try to do the opposite. So let's see how I do. The first thing you need to know, don't get so caught up in answering this question that you miss John's main point. He's making a point and the point is pray. Pray and God will answer. Pray for your brother when he sins and God's going to answer. God's going to give him life. So don't get so caught up in this. You miss that point. Christians like us, and when I say Christians like us, I mean specifically Baptists who are people of the book, who value Bible study and, and good Bible preaching. We're notorious. Brother Bob, you probably agree with me. We're notorious at getting caught up in these minor little points in Scripture and that's all we want to think about and talk about. And we miss the whole point of the Word of God. So don't do that. Yeah. All right? So that's the first point. So what is this sin that leads to death? Uh, i got six things to tell you, and then we'll move on. Is that enough? Six things? So first of all, number one, the first thing, it's obvious the people John was writing to knew exactly what he was talking about because he doesn't try to explain it. So they knew what he was talking about but we don't. We live 2,000 years later. He's using lingo and language that's, that's unfamiliar to us. So anybody, including me, who says, I got this all figured out, just listen to me, they're blowing smoke, all right? So it's, you, it's good to have a theory, it's good to work, work on this and, and ponder, but this is not one of those things I think that's possible for us to know for certainty. Number two, in the law of Moses, there were sins punishable by death and sins that weren't. The sins punishable by death were called intentional sins and, and the others were called unintentional sins. It, it had to do with ignorance. If you committed a sin in ignorance, then you could offer a sacrifice and God would forgive you. But if you were willfully sinning against the Lord, if you said, I don't care what the Bible says, I'm going to do what I want to do in defiance of God, the, the community was supposed to put you to death. Right? That's the law of Moses. And so some people have looked at this and said, maybe that's what John is talking about. However, I will say this. It's interesting that in Acts 3.17, when Peter is preaching to his fellow Jews, the men of Jerusalem who put Jesus to death, he says, you know, God just spared your lives because you acted in ignorance. You didn't know you were killing the Son of God, and that's why you're still alive. That's why you still have a chance to accept Christ. So when we think about unintentional, intentional sins, according to Peter, did I say Paul? I meant Peter. According to Peter, killing the Son of God was an unintentional sin on the part of the Jews. So just let that rest in your head for a little bit. A little bit. All right, so number three. Some of you are aware that Jesus in Mark 3.29 and other places talks about an unforgivable sin. He says, every sin can be forgiven except blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And that, you talk about a verse that has set people pondering. I've had people all my life come and say, I heard there's an unforgivable sin. How do I know if I've committed it? And, and I'm, I always tell them, don't worry about it. Because Jesus in that passage was talking to the scribes and Pharisees who had just told him, oh, the reason you can work miracles is because you're a son of the devil. You might be the devil himself. That's why you can do miracles. And Jesus said, be careful. When you ascribe the work of God to the devil, when you that completely reject God in the flesh, like you're rejecting me right now, there's no coming back from that. 
You can't be saved if you reject God in the flesh and call his work the work of the devil. The unforgivable sin is not saying a certain word. It's not something that you can slip up and accidentally do. It's absolute defiance against God where you say, uh, this is God, I know that it's God, and I reject him. So, so maybe that's what John is talking about here. However, number four, I will remind you that the context of the book of 1 John is false teaching. It's members of the church, Bible teachers in the church, maybe pastors have wandered away from the faith, have started to preach a different gospel than the one the apostles taught. They have decided they know better than God. And so they've made up their own version of the truth. And so it could be that that's what John is referring to here. That's the sin that leads to death. Number five, this is, this is where I come down on this. What John is saying is, anyone who is absolutely determined to reject God, God's not going to give them life. Because that's the promise, right? John in verse 16 says, if you pray for someone who sins, God will give them life. He'll, he'll restore them like the prodigal, come home. He'll, he'll give them back everything they once had. He's not going to hold their sin against them. That's what this is about. But someone who absolutely rejects God, who says, I want nothing to do with him, someone who rejects Christ and says, I don't believe in him, God's not going to force them to be saved. I think that's what John's saying here. The sin that leads to death, in my view, is rejecting the Savior. And when, we, when someone has made that sin, committed that sin, and, and takes it to the grave, in essence, there's nothing you and I can do. Now, I want to be clear about something. I don't think that verse teaches that if we know someone who has rejected Christ, we shouldn't pray for them. But in that case, we pray for their repentance. We pray that God would, would show them who He is, that God would give us words to speak to them, that God would soften their heart. There are many, any number of ways to pray. I don't think John is saying don't pray for anybody. I think what he's saying is you need to understand there are some people who, no matter how much you pray for them, I'm not going to give them life because they don't want it. They've rejected it. I'm not going to give them what they don't want. So finally, number six, don't get so caught up in, wow, I wonder if this person is committing the sin that leads to death. I better not pray for them just in case. Now, the point John is making is the exact opposite. Pray. Pray. Just understand, some people are going to reject the life God wants to give them but pray for everyone who you see who needs the Lord. I believe that's where we come out on this. Now, if you're still confused, Alan Armstrong is getting a PhD. I don't have a PhD. I have a, a minor little doctor of ministry, so he knows more than I do. You can tell him I said that in this context. I'm just messing with you. But uh, yeah, that, that's a confusing one but that's what I believe it's about. God's not going to give someone life who doesn't want it. All right. Next truth he wants us to understand in verse 18. Anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Here's another one that can be misunderstood. You could take that out of context to say, oh, then that means if I've been born again, I will never sin again. And that's not true. We know that from the rest of Scripture. We know that just for one example, uh, earlier in this same book, John says, anybody who says there's no sin in me is a liar. John is, is a smart enough man to not contradict himself. 
What is he saying? He's saying that once you give your heart to God, one of the ways you can tell is you no longer are able to go on in the same pattern of life. There is a change in your life if Christ has become part of you. Jesus called it being born again. Being born of the Spirit. You you have something new in you. Doesn't mean you'll never sin again. but, But I look at it this way. Jesus in John 15 famously said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. What is fruit? Fruit is changes of your character. It's it's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and all those things that, that mark the character of Jesus. If you've been saved, if you're in Jesus, you're going to start to see those things come into your life in greater and greater number. If, on the other hand, you're still living the exact same way you were before, there's been no change at all, then then you don't have Jesus yet. You haven't truly repented. And I want to be careful in how I say that because there are people, for instance, who uh, struggle in addiction and then they get saved and then later on they, they backslide. You know, they, they have a, a moment where they go back to their old addiction and I don't want them to think, oh my goodness, that means I'm not really saved because I'm doing the things I did before I got saved. That's not the case. Any more than it's the case that uh, that I do sometimes things that I used to, I commit sins that I used to commit. It doesn't mean I'm no longer a believer or never really was saved because I can point to a moment where things changed for me. I can point to the fact that now when I sin, I feel responsible to someone. I didn't used to anymore. Now it was just about, before it was just about me. And I only repented when something came back and hurt me. Now when I sin, There's guilt, there's shame, there's conviction. There's a desire to get right with my father. That wasn't there before. Remember, King David was a man after God's own heart before he committed those horrible sins with Bathsheba and with her husband Uriah. And then he wrote Psalm 51 about his repentance and how how when he held his sin in his heart, he felt like he had a fever. He was, he was just blazing with that, that conviction of sin, and he just had to get it out, had to get right. That's the change that happens in us when we are truly his. All right, verse 19, the next one. We are children of God. He says, we belong to him, but the world belongs to the enemy. He wants us to know because you're children of God in a world that doesn't currently profess allegiance to God, life here is going to be hard sometimes. Part of the problem for us as American Christians is, especially if you're my age or older, you grew up in a society that was very different than most of world history, where being a Christian was socially advantageous, right? If you were a church-going person, that helped you get a job. That helped you get a loan. That helped you uh, be more popular in some circles, right? Helped you get elected. We're rapidly moving into a society as our society becomes less Christian, which is like the rest of the world and like the, the way the world has been like most of, the, most of history. And it's kind of a shock to our system. So you hear American Christians getting all upset about, well, why is it so hard now? Why, 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 did I, why do we have all these people giving us such a hard time about our faith? And, and the Lord, I think, would point to passages like this and says, but I told you it would be that way. I told you it would. And instead of fussing about it, 
just understand this is part of what it means to serve the Lord in a world that still needs to be redeemed. The world is under the control of the evil one for now, and we should not be surprised when we don't quite fit. That's part of life following Jesus. And then the next thing he wants us to know in verse 20 is the Son of God has come. And this is the whole root of the issue between John and these false teachers. John wants them to know, I've seen him, I've touched him, I've heard his voice, I've eaten meals with him, he's real, and he is God, and he is man, and anything other than that is, is a lie. And these false teachers have said, well, you know, we'd like a Jesus who's more according to our personal preferences and philosophies. A Jesus that's not quite so controversial today. We, we want to kind of make him into something that's a little more palatable for our Greek and Roman neighbors. And John says, well, I prefer the real Jesus because only the real Jesus saves. Now, if you want to know whether you're following the real Jesus or not, Ask yourself the question, when's the last time your Jesus told you no? When's the last time your Jesus stepped on your toes and hurt your feelings and contradicted your desires? Because if the God you believe in agrees with everything you already think and hates all the same people you hate and, and thinks that all of your choices are good choices, then there's a pretty good, uh, pretty good chance you've created that God in your own image. Now, if on the other hand, you're, you're worshiping a true God there's going to be times like with any other, in any other relationship where you think, boy, life would be easier if I didn't have to obey this person. That's one of the signs that he's real. In any relationship, they have to be able to contradict you. And Jesus does. The Son of God has come. And then finally, the last thing, there's no substitute for him. There's no substitute for Jesus. First John might have the weirdest ending of any book in the Bible because it just sort of randomly, abruptly ends. John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And that's the last sentence he writes. It's very different from Paul's writing, right? Where there's, hey, say, say hello to Phoebe and say hello to uh, Apollos and, and so-and-so. And yeah, I can't wait to see you. And uh, here's this guy who's, who's copied the letter for me. Uh, he says, thank you. I say, thank you. Uh, may God bless you. Peace be with you. John doesn't do that. He ends with, little children, keep yourselves from idols. What a weird way to end. But why? Well, ask yourself the question, what is an idol? People who were with me in Colorado last week know, because we talked about this all week. An idol is anything we ask to do for us what only God can do. An idol is not necessarily a statue. It's not even something that the world defines as a god. Oh, an idol is anything you ask to do for you, what only God can do. So if your life, your identity, your joy, your uh, sense of security is based on your work or your physical health or your outward appearance or your popularity or your money or your family, even though most of those things are good things, if any of those things is your ultimate thing, I can't live without that, then that is your true God. That is your idol. You're expecting that thing, that person to do for you what only God can do. And so what Jesus is saying, I mean, I'm sorry, what John is saying here at the end of the book is, listen, if you want to walk in the light, you have to have one king and one king only, and that's Jesus. 
The false teachers want to give you a a Jesus that's according to your own design. But I want to give you the one that actually saves. In every era of human history, you can bank on this. Even in this country in the 1950s when we think it was so good, in every era of human history, there's been a false Messiah that people worshiped. There's been been philosophies and teachings and ideas and ideals that were much more trendy and popular than actual discipleship for Jesus Christ. But in all those years, there's only been one that died for our sins and rose again the third day and is coming back to judge the living and the dead. So uh, if we want to walk in the light, if we want to have assurance of salvation, if we want to experience abundant living, it's, it's a constant process of making sure, who am I really worshiping right now? Who am I really serving? And if the answer is anything other than Jesus, even if the answer is, well, I'm praying to Jesus that he'll give me this thing, that's what I'm after. Well, that's not going to work. But if instead you're saying, I'm praying to Jesus, and if he gives me this thing, it'll be great. But either way, if I have him, I've, I've got enough. Then that's the way to live. All right, let's pray. Lord God, I, I pray that uh, the way I've explained these last verses would not confuse people, but it would instead encourage them and help them to grow in their trust in you and their love for you. And I pray that we would be a church that preaches you as you truly are, the true king and the true savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.